Tenetato Katoa, Talo Valava, welcome you all to uh, Word Christchurch's Shifting Points of View. I am in conversation with uh, Deray McKesson, hashtag Black Lives Matter. I'm Victor Roger, multiple award-winning playwright, but enough about me. <laughs> no, really. Um, <clears throat> uh, would like to acknowledge the mana whenua of Otautahi, my two hudi hudi. And would like to thank the Word Christchurch's funders and partners, without whom this would not be possible. Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Heartland Bank, Te Runanga o Naitahu, and the New Zealand Listener. Uh, now, at the, towards the end of this session, and there's a counter somewhere, hopefully, oh yes, right in front of me, uh, there'll be an opportunity for the audience to ask questions, and there'll be a roving mic. Uh, please wait for the mic to come underneath your mouth, uh, because uh, this uh, conversation is being recorded tonight. Okay, and at the end of the, uh, the conversation, DeRay will be uh, in the foyer somewhere, available to sign his book, On the Other Side of Freedom, which we are here to discuss tonight. So, uh, yes, okay. Let me just look at this. Um, I wanted to say to you, uh, DeRay, because this is your first time in New Zealand, right? Second time in New Zealand, uh, first time in Christchurch. Okay, so your second time in New Zealand, right? Good to be here. We clearly had a secret phone call about these red pants, by the way. This is like a good Synchronicity, right? It's going to be a good night, guys. Um, you know, I just wanted to say in, in the Maori language, Haidamai, uh, and in the Samoan language of my father, Afiomai, and uh, welcome. Welcome back. It's good to be here. To New Zealand. Okay, so. As a child, DeRay lived for a time on Delray Street with his single father, Ray, and his sister, Telray. I thought that was funny. <laughs> As a boy, he found it easier to believe in Storm from the cartoon series of the X-Men more than he did in God from the Bible. And he credits Storm with teaching him a lot about leadership. Uh, DeRay still remembers the first time he saw a white person who made a mistake and the profound effect it had on him. While working as a teacher, he felt a call to action after the police murder of an unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri, whose dead black body was essentially left to cook in the brutal heat for four and a half hours. It's uh, five years this year uh, since the Ferguson protests. Um, Del Rey, since then, um, has co-founded Campaign Zero, a police reform campaign, was named one of Time Magazine's 30 most influential people on the internet, and number 11 on Fortune's World Greatest Leaders list. He also hosts the popular podcast, Pod Save the People, and if you jump on his Insta, you are likely to see him photographed with people such as Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the acclaimed director, Ava DuVernay, Jesse Williams, and John Legend. Um, and perhaps more important than that, um, he is followed on Twitter by Beyonce, uh, <laughs> who 
gets uh, a big thank you and the acknowledgements of his book on the other side of freedom. But um, tonight, DeRay is here in Christchurch on the other side of the world from his native Baltimore. Now, I did want to start with uh, one of your quotes, um, DeRay. History has shown us the consequence of inaction. We can and should acknowledge the trauma that we face, but we should not accept it. We will never get to the other side of freedom if we accept the trauma as a feature and not a flaw of this world. So five years on from Ferguson, um, how much closer are we to freedom? You know, I'll start by saying it's an honor to be here. I am appreciative of everybody who came to be here today. The Beyonce thing is really funny because uh, when Beyonce followed me on Twitter, it was, that was literally how I was introduced for like the next three months. People were like, <laughs> they were like, Drea McKesson, an activist and followed by Beyonce. And you're like, I don't know, okay. So this is like one of the first times in a long time, I, you know? It's been, uh, in, in terms of like, what, where, have we, where, where are we five years later is, you know, the not good part about it is that the police have actually killed more people since the protests, not less, which is sort of wild, is that all of us thought that us being in the street and us changing the conversation would just change the outcomes. And I think as an organizer, one of the things that I'm mindful of is that a change in conversation does not always mean a change in, uh, in outcomes, and we never confuse it to. So we are talking about justice and the police and mass incarceration in ways that we've never talked about in the United States, but the police have killed more people uh, since the protests, not less. A third of all the people killed by a stranger in the United States is actually killed by a police officer. And this is actually the first year ever where black people are more afraid of being killed by a police officer than being killed by community violence. So it is bad. Uh, the, the good news is that, you know, in 2014, people thought that there was a problem in Ferguson. They did not think there was a problem in America. Now people sort of accept that there's a problem, that there's like structurally something wrong. I'm hopeful that the next five years will be us trying to figure out, will, will be us not only trying to figure out because we think we actually know what the answers are, but the next five years will be us putting those answers into place. So chapter three in the book is about like, what have we learned since 2014? And the short version is that we now know that there are a system of policies, practices, and laws that almost guarantee the police won't be held accountable. So in California, which is the biggest state, there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline, regardless of the outcome. That doesn't really make sense. Uh, in Cleveland, one of our big cities, there's a rule that says that police officer disciplinary records are destroyed every two years. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And there are a lot of those things all across the country that we now know. Mm. One thing we were discussing before we came on stage was, you know, when um, people like yourselves are having to tell the story again and again, there's the danger that you begin to feel like a human jukebox. And you were saying that um, uh, the first 50 days for you were kind of the sweetest period of, or well, maybe not the sweetest, but the most uh, profound period for you in Ferguson. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's like, I'm, you know, I'm a protester. I believe in protesting and activism. I've been telling a story about the protests for five years, and you know, you tell any story that long, you're like, whew, this is a lot of storytelling. Um, I think that you know, the beginning was so different because it was also new for us, right? So like, I would be on the news, and sort of, my, I was like the town crier, so I had the biggest platform, and say something would happen, I would be on the news like trying to defend the protesters. That was sort of my, one of my big roles. And there were some moments, like I remember um, one night outside of the Ferguson Police Department, P 
people, protesters were like fist fighting, like it was a bad night. And there was a lot of tension inside of the movement. And it happened to be like an anniversary of something. So like all of the news was there. It was just like not, it was not a great night for the protest. But the news cameras have like HD quality footage of people fighting. So I get called to be on the news the next day and I get on and she, when they call me, they're like, when they call you in the United States to be on the news, they're like, hey, will you be on at so-and-so to talk about so-and-so? And I'm like, cool. But I knew I was gonna get a sneak question about these fights because I, I knew I was. So lo and behold, I get on, she asks me like some question and then she goes, DeRay. And then literally the camera pans to like fist fights. And she's like, you told me this was nonviolent. This looks like violence. And I'm like, eh. Um, and we had, you know, my best friend and I, Donnie, he and I would workshop all these answers because I, I, was, I was good at anticipating like what the news might say to trip me up. So I look at the camera and I go, me and my sister fall all the time as kids and I never questioned my love for her. And then I just paused, you know, like, you, you know, when you say something, you're like, hope it lands. Uh, so I did it and she was just like, okay. And I was like, whew. Um, so that was, there was so much of that at the beginning that I was like, we really were trying to dig ourselves out of these holes. Or like they would, um, the police killed Freddie Gray in Baltimore. They, his, they broke his spine. And then the protests happened and people burned down some buildings. And so I get on the news the next day and they're like, DeRay, like talk to me about the property damage. And I'm like, broken windows are not the same thing as broken spines. And like, it was a lot of that in the early days, you know? And it's just not that anymore. So it's a lot of like helping people understand what the system stuff is. And the system stuff isn't always sexy to people. The beginning was much more like defending this space that we held sacred, do you know what I mean? Um, and, I, and in some ways I miss sort of like the mental space that that put me in. At what point were you most hopeful that change might be coming sooner than it has? I think that I knew early that we were right, right? Like the police were, I don't, you know, I worry sometimes that like no book or no video will, will convey just how wild it was. Like I remember we were in a coffee shop one night and the police were, there was this one coffee shop that Mokabee's that they were just like a safe haven for protesters and we could always be there. And we were in this part of town where Mokabee's was, the police wanted us to go home. And again, we were protesters. So the whole point was like to defy the police. So they're like, go home. And we're like, we're on the sidewalk. Sidewalk's public, can't tell us to go home. So we go inside of Mokabee's because they just start tear gassing the sidewalk. So we're like, cool, we'll go inside the coffee shop. We'll just wait you out. And next thing we know, they start tear gassing the coffee shop, right? So we're like, you know, in the basement of the coffee shop because the smoke rises. It was just like, it was so wild so often. And I worry sometimes that people forget that. But when I think about the most hopeful, it was, we didn't have any formal training. Like we didn't, you know, like, we, but we were out there and we kept it alive for so long. I think the one protest, and I write about this a little bit, but the one action that we did that was like, I literally had an out of body experience. I was like, this is magic, is, um, we did this thing called Occupy Slew. Two incredible organizers sort of planned the whole thing. But I was like the town crier, so they would say, DeRay, like, get people to come to the mall or this corner or whatever. So they're like, literally, we're standing on a corner, nobody's there, and we start tweeting, like, you need to be at this corner, da da. Like, 3,000 people show up. So way more people came than we thought, and we couldn't take 3,000 people the one route that we planned. So we decide in the moment we're gonna split them into two groups. And the police were monitoring all of our social media, and we had never ever split anybody into two groups, so they just weren't prepared. So we split people into two groups, and they only follow one group, which was 
very bad on their part, great on our part. So we split them up. And my, the group that I'm leading, we get, there's this bridge that the other group is going to have to cross. Like they're going to have to cross this bridge to go where we're trying to go. So we come on the other side of the bridge and the police aren't expecting us. They don't even know we have 1,500 people like on this side. They just weren't paying attention, which was, again, great for us. So we get to the side of the bridge and we look across and the police have barricaded them so they can't cross. But the police don't even know we're coming. I don't know how, they like really screw that one up. So we literally, we come and we start closing in on the police and they freak. And all of a sudden they just like back up and the protesters run through. And like, I'll never forget seeing the protesters like run through because it was like the first time that we had just like outmaneuvered them, you know? We were like, we got you. And they just like fell back and we're like, we won. Uh, and those were some of the moments where you were like, we could do this. We did another shutdown that was called, um, there was an early chant that was called, they think it's a game, they think it's a joke, like that was on the chants. So we shut down this huge intersection playing games, like playing Foursquare and Hopscotch and, and like jump rope. And it'd be like 60 year old white women like jump roping in the middle of the intersection. And we knew that like the police weren't gonna like violently arrest a 60 year old white woman hopscotching, right? Like that was just like, there's no video of that that doesn't look crazy. And that was great, you know, cause we're like playing monkey in the middle and the police are like livid. They're like, you need to get out of the street. But we're like, catch the ball. And they're like, you know. Um, so those are the moments when I was like the most hopeful because like we were in the street for a long time, you know, and the police thought that the cold was gonna take us. They thought that, you know, I write in the book about there was this five second rule, so it was illegal to stand still for more than five seconds for August, September, and October, the first three months. And they thought that that rule was gonna keep us, that, they thought that rule was gonna make us go home. So you literally had to not stand still. Yeah, so we marched. So if you ever saw us marching in the street, it wasn't that we thought marching was like some cool tactic. We would have loved to stay still, but we couldn't. So if they, uh, if they saw you standing still for more than five seconds, there were, there were like three rules. It was like, if you stood still, you couldn't like pace. So you couldn't like stand here, go stand there and then come back here. Uh, and then you couldn't like saunter. You couldn't like, it was just like, a, but they made these rules up, but they were like, they enforced them as if they were laws. So we took them seriously because you get arrested. So, that was sort of wild, but they thought that we were going to go home, and we were like, well, we got to walk, y'all got to walk. So we just kept walking, you know, and we would walk the most obscure routes because then the police would have to follow us, and they were pissed, we were pissed, and we were like, good, everybody's pissed, you know, like, everybody's mad today. So those are the moments when I, when I saw people do things that were, like, ingenious. That was really cool. The last one I'll say is one of the, one of the only times that I was, like, actually afraid was... We did a sit-in of a police department. So literally, I get a call the night before that's like, hey, DeRay, we need you to come to this meeting and we can't tell you over the phone why you need to come. And it's like, okay. And I would get these calls all the time because I had the biggest platform in terms of like telling people where to go. So I would get calls all the time being like, we're gonna shut down the mall. Can you tell people to come at three o'clock? We're gonna do this. And you know, if I trusted you, then I'd tell people. If I didn't, I would act like I forgot or something. So these people called me and I tr this one organizer, she was brilliant. So she's like, come, but she's never like, I can't tell you why. So I'm like, okay, what are, what are we shutting down today? So I go to this, I go to this meeting, they make me take my phone out. I'm like, okay, this is, and I sort of had this past where like, there were places where nobody could bring their phone, but I could bring my phone. Cause like that was sort of my job. But this one meeting, I couldn't even bring my phone. So they're like, we're gonna shut down the inside of a police department. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be special. And the way that they set it up, it was so smart, is that they had like 15 white people, 
and like two black people. And the white people all wore like Sunday's best. And the plan, we had this like, this um, group chat and everybody had a number. And the plan was that they would walk in as couples and as singles and they would go like fill out paperwork or like ask questions, but randomly in the police department. And then all of a sudden would sit down and shut it down. And the black people were supposed to come at the very end. Because if, you know, if a couple black people walk in the police department, it's like already a crisis. So it was only white people. So literally, like, one by one, the white people, like, we're there. I'm, like, seeing it happening. You're like, oh, my God. One by one, they walk in. The police don't think anything. And literally, the, it's like the, the, the foyer of the police department is now suddenly full. But these look like random strangers that just all woke up in the morning to go fill out paperwork at the police department. So the, this, the like, he wasn't a police officer, but she was, like, the front desk person. She is, like, okay, it's a lot of people. So she goes to lock the door. And I'm right there, and I'm like, oh, I got to get him real quick. <laughs> so she lets me in, much to her chagrin. And then we go in, and literally we shut it down. And the police are, like, freaked. And what they don't know is that there are 400 protesters around the corner waiting to get in. So they think we're the only thing. And then all of a sudden, one of us gets up, uh, this kid named Jonathan, he gets up. And there are 400 people at the door, and he runs, and he, like, hits the door. So, like, the door swings open, and the police just, like, push through and knock everybody down. It was, like, it was such a wild thing. And then we get grabbed by, like, I got grabbed by my ankles and dragged out of the police department. But it was one of those moments where, like, nobody ever imagined that we could shut down a police department. Like, that would be something that if we had said that, people would have been like, y'all are crazy. And then we did it, you know, and like, I remember they told me, they were like, Dre, you can't tell the media, because I knew all the reporters, so that was sort of my job, was to like, make sure we were covered from the press, but I, to I was told I couldn't tell the media. So what I did is I called a reporter, and I was like, hey, I can't tell you what's going to happen, and I can't tell you where it's going to happen. But if you are at this intersection at this time, you will be close enough, so when it happens, like, you will have the story. And he comes, he's there, and it was great, because the police were so crazy that day that like, they were freaked out by a reporter being present, so they were like a little more calm. Uh, but it was those moments where it was like, wow, this is magic, you know? DeRay, how would you typify the coverage um, of Ferguson from the um, you know, established media as opposed to like you were on Twitter for, for all that time? What was the big difference between what was being disseminated by the establishment and by people like yourself? I think that the, the news sort of painted us as like the crazy black people on the street. It was like, you know, there are other ways to make change. Why would you shut down the street? People have to go to work. Like, that was sort of the thing. The thing that changed it, though, is that the police in St. Louis, so Ferguson is, like, geographically pretty small. The Ferguson Police Department has 50 police officers. It was thousands of us. Those 50 people weren't going to do anything. So they essentially created one big police department in the whole county, and all of the police officers in the whole county had the power to police us, which was sort of wild. And they just didn't care. So Don, if you know Don Lemon on CNN, if any of you watch CNN, Don, we like Don now. Don was not very woke before, but Don's great now. And one of the best things that happened to us is that they tear gassed Don Lemon. And you should have seen Don get tear gassed. You would have thought the world ended. He was like, oh my God. And we're like, we told you they were tear gassing people, you know? And it was actually really powerful because they were so crazy to the media too that the coverage started to change because the media realized that like we weren't lying, you know? And that was really big. I think that on the protesters' side is like the reporters just couldn't get in our meetings, you know? So we became like, the, they didn't know what we were planning. They didn't know how we were doing it. So they got the information as, as quickly as everybody else did, you know, or as late as everybody else did. So that gave us a lot of power. 
Would it be fair to say that in terms of resistance and protests, you guys were figuring it all out on the fly? Absolutely. I think that we definitely, in the first 20, 30 days, we really did think that like the real people were coming. We were like, they're coming. They're going to help us. They're going to save us. It's going to work. And then they didn't come. And I will tell you that some, some national organizers did come down and like they didn't know what to do. You know, we went to this one training from like a national organizer and she was teaching us how to power map. And we were like, girl, we don't need to put it on the map. We ain't got the power. We know it. We don't need to chart it. We don't need to draw it. Like, we don't have it, you know? Like, we are getting tear gas and shot at. We need to figure out how to deal with that, you know? And, like, we realized that we had to make it up, you know? But we really did wait. We, the NAACP came down, which is, like, one of the oldest civil rights organizations. They marched in the middle of the daytime. When the night came, they were in a hotel. And we were like, y'all not it either, because they are trying to kill us out here, you know? So it really was like we had to find our own way. I'm going to assume that before you went to Ferguson to the protests, you hadn't been tear gassed or, you know, had military arms in your face before. How how did that feel? Like, was it, I mean, it was happening, but could you believe it was happening? No, I think, you know, the thing about tear gas, if any of you have been tear gassed, then you know, hopefully you've not been. Uh, Tear gas is colorless, so it, you like don't really, they add, when you see it in movies, it looks like there's like a smoke bomb or something, but they add that to make it look like smoke, but that dissipates pretty quickly. So there were nights where they shot so much tear gas that you literally didn't, you would like be walking on the street and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I guess that's tear gas. And tear gas sticks to everything. So like, unlike pepper spray, for instance, pepper spray doesn't really stick to a lot of stuff, but tear gas sticks to like your clothes and everything. So you would have, when we got tear gassed, um, we would have to go home and like wash everything over and over so it got out of your clothes. And the best way I've been able to describe the sensation of tear gas, it'd be, it'd be like taking like a peppermint, like whatever that menthol flavor is and putting it all over your face. So it doesn't like necessarily hurt until you like, until a breeze hits it. And then it all of a sudden like your face is like stinging. Like that would be, the best example of what tear gas is. So that was in St. Louis. In Baltimore, we got shot at with pepper balls, and this is by far the most ineffective of the weapons they used. A pepper ball makes you sneeze, and you'd be like, I don't, it was like the weird, you're like, it felt like we were in some weird movie. You're like, is this really the weapon? Like, I'd rather you use the pepper ball than something else, but like, sneezing is whatever. So that was weird. Um, and then smoke bombs are like, smoke bombs make a huge, like, sound and then there's a lot of smoke but the smoke doesn't like hurt as much as you just can't see you know but could you believe it was happening when it was happening no we were all like this is wild and we didn't know that you can actually they can shoot uh, tear gas from like huge distances you know like 50 60 100 feet and we thought that like tear gas had to be shot pretty close until they were shooting it like across whole fields and we're like well that was different um so, yeah, no, no, it was, it was wild. It was, there was so much, it was 400 days of wild, though, you know? Yep. Uh, there's a quote I think I came across in one of your interviews online that I really liked. It was, um, people are in love with the idea of resistance as opposed to the work of resistance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that people, you know, it is... So when we were in the street in 2014, it was not very cool to be a protester. Now it's cool. Now people are like, oh my God, I protest. I went to the protest brunch. And you're like, okay. You know, it's like a lot of, it's very sort of interesting. Uh, but when you ask people to like put something on the line, there are a lot of people who like intellectually are there and then are not willing to risk anything. And I think there are people who are like have romanticized, like, I, you know, 
what happened pretty quickly is people like wanted to be tear gassed and we were like, that is crazy. Like we didn't want to be tear gassed, you know, but people like wanted that badge of honor or like, you know, I got arrested in, in that photo and I got arrested twice and like neither time did I plan to get arrested, like they were not planned, but people would like go outside with the express purpose to get arrested, you know? And it was like, that was sort of a weird thing. But people started to romanticize like what struggle looked like and what it meant to be an activist. Uh, so I said that because what I do sometimes when I do talks is give people what I believe to be like practical advice about how to do the work in a way that is not just in love with the idea, but is in love with the practice. Okay. Um, up the top, well, in the middle, you can see the, the cover of DeRay's book, um, On the Other Side of Freedom. Um, you can't see the whole thing, but I was looking at it uh, tonight and asked DeRay if he'd posed for it because it does kind of look like a post shot, but DeRay, you, you did not pose for it, right? That is from... I did not. You know, it's funny, so I was in jail for a day, and um, so I get arrested. The, so I took a video. I had just taken a job as the chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore, which I led all of, like, human resources, everything to do with adults in the school system. And part of my deal with the superintendent was that I would not be in the news because I, was, I had such a big platform. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'm going to lay low. I got you. Literally, I took the job on July 1st. This is on July 9th. So the, the police, so we, I go to Baton Rouge. Somebody in Baton Rouge is like, DeRay, will you come and help us? And I'm like, yes, I will be there, but I have to go to work. So I will get on the first plane Friday at five. Like I am there. So I go down and I'm telling them, I got to lay low. I'm going to use my platform to help. Like anything you need me to do, I got you. And I'll be in the street because my commitment to my boss is not that I will stop being an activist, but I will not be in the news. So I'm out there and the police are like, you need to get out of the street. And I'm like, you know what? Cool, you're right. I do have to get out of the street today because I said I was not going to be in the news. So he's like, get out of the street. And I put on my, I put on Periscope, so I'm like live streaming. And I literally live stream the line. I'm not across the line. I get out of the street. And next thing I know, there's like a stampede. So I'm running and I go to get up and I can't get up. And I'm like, wow, I just got stuck in the stampede. This sucks. This is weird. And then I go to get up again. I'm like, whew, I really can't get up. This is really crazy. And I realize that there's, these, you can't see them, but they're on the cover of the book. They're these two officers who have their arms like holding me down. And I'm like, oh, this is bad. And then the guy's like, you're arrested. And I'm like, oh, bad. So I throw my phone, my friends get my phone. And then I'm on a, they put us on a bus. So I get zip tied on this bus. And I think they were just like lazy. So my zip ties are really loose. So literally I walk on the bus, take my zip ties off. And I'm like, does anybody have a phone? <laughs> So somebody has a phone, so I take, and like other people's zip ties are really tight, mine are not. So I'm like calling like people, being like, I'm okay, I'm texting people I know, and then I'm making calls for other people because they can't use their hands because their zip ties are really tight. Uh, so that happens, but this photo becomes like a thing. It's like on the newspaper covers, it's on TV, but I don't see it until two days later because I'm in jail for a day. So I get out and people are like, did you pose? For I'm like, why would I pose for a photo? I got arrested. This isn't like a badge of honor. This was crazy, you know? And in the jail in, in Baton Rouge, they actually put us in jumpsuits. And jumpsuits are not great for a lot of reasons, but one of the interesting things about jumpsuits is that they come in like government sizes. So I'm a small and I get put in this jumpsuit and the only reason it matters that the sizes are weird is that it's so much space and jail is pretty hot. So you're just like a roasting sweat bucket, you know, in this gross jumpsuit. And normally you don't get put in jumpsuits if you're not in jail for a long time, but they were just trying to make a point out of abusing us. So we were in this jumpsuit. So I get out, this photo is everywhere and people are like, did you pose? And what happened in this photo 
is I literally, I, this is like when I just realized I got arrested and I'm looking down because I got arrested like this. And then I literally lift my head up and there's a photographer who was with the police. He was not on our side, but he was like traveling with the police at night and he literally just points the camera. So I look up and I see the camera and then he takes a shot. So he takes three shots. The two after this, I look crazy. Uh, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I look nuts. But this one just came out like that. And it, uh, it is that one. And you know, the people at Twitter were all amped about it because they were like, he wore our shirt to get arrested. It was like, I, the goal was not to get arrested, um, but yeah. At what point, because you, you um, joined the protests uh, while you were still a teacher, right? While I was an administrator. An administrator. At what point did you realize you weren't going to go back to that life and that you're going to continue a life of activism and protest? Early. I knew I was going to quit early uh, because I was, I was younger and I was like, you know, I'll find a job again. Like, I'm not stressed about being employed. I think I'll figure that out. You know, it's funny. Now I'm like, hmm, I made a lot of crazy decisions then. Like, I defaulted on my student loans. I depleted my retirement account. I didn't pay my credit card bill. Like, I didn't realize credit in America runs on seven-year cycles, so I'll be dealing with that for the next six years. <laughs> so that was rough. Uh, but I was like, you know, I'll get a new job. Like, that'll be easy. And then I quit the next March. Like, I officially quit in March. Like, the protest started in August. My boss was like, Dre, please do not quit right now because I'll be screwed. So I was like, you know, I love you. I will do whatever I can to help her. And she provided so much cover because we had to take my phone number off the website and all this stuff because people would call and complain about the protest to the office. Like, that was sort of a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but I knew early that I was going to leave. Okay. Because of your activism, you've had death threats. <laughs> FBI's visited your house, your phone's been hacked, and there are several cities that have hired surveillance companies to, to follow you. I mean, that's pretty full on. What's, what's kept you in it and made you not go, okay, this, it's enough, it's enough now? Yeah, I know that like part of what the people who do those things want me to do is to be too afraid to do the work. Like That's a part of the goal, so I try not to feed into that fear. Uh, the first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for raising money to try and get me killed, so that was crazy. Uh, my phone being hacked was really, I was on a panel, and I, I had two phones at the time, and I always travel with more than one phone because I was worried about my phone getting hacked, but I have two phones, and this one phone, the panel sucked, by the way. The panel was, like, not a cool panel. So literally, I'm looking at my phone, like, get me out of here. <laughs> and, and one of my phones, the screen goes, like, please activate your phone. And I was like, that's really weird. I've never seen that before. So I'm like, okay, let me just turn it off, turn it back on. And it's like, please activate your phone. I'm like, that is, I've never seen that. So I'm, I'm on my other phone, and all of a sudden, I'm getting, like, a ton of texts from reporters. And I'm like, did somebody die? Like, what happened? Like, what is... And they're like, Dre, can you please explain your endorsement of Donald Trump? And I'm like, what? I'm like, I didn't endorse Donald Trump. And I realized, so somebody has hacked my account, and they, they've, so I, re, so I first realized my Twitter has been hacked because it tweets like, I endorse Donald Trump and a photo of Trump from me. And it's like, I didn't do that. So long story short is that I realized that Verizon, which is my cell phone carrier, somebody called Verizon your PIN number for Verizon is your last four digits of your social security number. Somebody calls Verizon, my social had been dumped on the internet on the dark web. They call, they act like they're me, they get my SIM card changed over the phone, and then they reset every account that they can find for me, and it sends like the code to a, a device that they now control. So that's how they hacked into my Twitter. So Twitter, so I get on the phone with Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, is a friend, I call him, he's no help. I call somebody else at Twitter, and I'm like, hey, my account's been hacked. And she's like, DeRay, it's a policy that we actually don't delete the tweets of other people as a company. 
And I'm like, girl, this is killing me, though. Because the reporters are like, please explain. You know, Trump is crazy, as you know. But then he had one, and I was like, you know, so that was bad. So Twitter is getting so much bad press for this tweet up, because I'm like, I did not tweet that, that they call me back 20 minutes later, and they're like, Dre, can we please delete the tweet? I'm like, yes, delete the tweet. But that was really nuts. But the reason I stay in the work is that I think we can win. I believe it. Like, I think that we will look back in 20 years, and we'll be like, that was hard, but we did it, you know? Uh, and I know that the people who do these things like want us to be too afraid. I do travel a lot, and, and that keeps me a little more grounded, like, because I'm not in one place all the time. I think if I was just in one place, then I would be a little more freaked out, but, um, but I'm not. You raise Mr. Trump, President Trump. Um, you know, I think it was earlier this month, or maybe last month, I caught um, the CNN presenter, Victor Blackwell, tearfully defending Baltimore, your hometown, after... Yep. President Trump had tweeted, no human being would want to live there and said it was infested. Um, I follow both Fox and CNN quite a lot just to see what, what both sides are disseminating. But, you know, there's so many um, presenters that are on the verge of tears these days. How did you feel about those comments that he made about Baltimore? Trump has been bad since the beginning. You know, one of the hard things about Trump is that there were so many people at the beginning who were like, you know what, let's give him a chance. And you're like, no, no chance. Fight, 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 right? Like, fight. You should be fighting. And it's annoying that, like, three years in, people are like, I think we should fight him. You're like, well, what are you doing? You're like, you should be fighting day one, you know? Uh, I, the comments were just, like, another example of him being ridiculous. You know, he said similar things about Chicago. He has, like, attacked cities that are majority black for a long time. I think I'm shocked that people are still shocked, you know? And I will say... He does things every day that you're like, wow, I didn't even know the government could do that. I didn't know the government could move that fast. You're like, this is the fastest the government's ever moved, you know? The only time that I actually laughed at him on TV was, you probably, Mia Love, people in America don't even know Mia Love. Mia Love is a black woman who's a Republican. And they're like, there should be no black people in the Republican Party at home. But Mia was a Republican. And Mia was in Utah, which is one of the biggest Mormon communities. So Mia was a, Mia was a, Big deal on the right, because she was the only black woman in Congress. And Mia wasn't sort of anti-Trump, but she wasn't pro-Trump either. So she runs for election and she loses. And Trump gets on TV, press conference. This is like a presidential press conference. And he goes, Mia love, show me no love, and she lost. <laughs> I was like, that was funny. I was like, that was, like, you are so wild. Like, what is, this is real life, you know? Uh, but he was like, me in love, show me the love, and she lost. And you're like, that was the whole, that was the whole press conference. And you're like, where am I, you know? Um, but he really is wild. I hope that people get it together for 2020. You know, we're always reminded that more people voted, voted for Hillary than voted for him. That is real. That voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression was one of his tactics. Uh, and hopefully with Facebook having to redo some of their stuff, he won't be able to get as much traction. But... What is your sense, though? You live in America. What is your sense in terms of, is there a groundswell of resistance against him, or is, it, is, is there a possibility he will, a strong possibility? Definitely a possibility he, he could win. Uh, I think the, interest, the most fascinating thing about the Trump strategy to win the first time is that nobody had ever thought somebody would win with no ground game. Remember, Trump had no, so in America, like, everybody employs, like, organizers on the ground to knock on doors and stuff like that. Trump had nobody knocking on doors. There were like no community events, like none, like that just, that infrastructure didn't exist with him. 
it was literally like online in those big rallies. Like it was Facebook ads and big rallies. So the Trump voters were pretty quiet. You know, they weren't, they weren't vocal people. They weren't people that like said they were gonna vote for him. They just voted for him in the end. I think it'll be interesting to see this, this go around. Um, what ha will the Democrats kill each other so that people don't vote? That is a real possibility. Uh, will the Trump people finally be outraged? Like when he, I don't know if you just saw, he said, I'm the chosen one. That pissed off a lot of the evangelicals. And you're like, okay. Because <laughs> even they were like, okay, buddy, that's, you're like, put kids in cages, totally fine. I'm the chosen one, still, hold up. Uh, so it pissed off so many evangelicals that he, I don't know if you saw, but he recently had to walk it back and he was like, I was just joking. You're like, were you joking? Uh, so we'll see, he might piss off more of those people. I, when he did the grab them, when he said some of the sexist comments, like people really thought his campaign was over then and like white women still voted for him, you know? So that was, that was surprising. Okay. There's a bit in the, uh, your, your, your first chapter on hope that, um, it was after you'd had a brush or a face death or something, you know, it was in losing the fear of death that I began to understand faith and hope. And you talk about faith and hope in this sequence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I just wanted to, I think people talk about hope as like a hokey thing, like, oh, you have hope today. And I think about hope as a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today is like, I really do think it's this notion that like, we can actually make tomorrow better. Sometimes we say the system is broken and people say, oh no, it was designed to be like that. And my takeaway is that it was designed, that people made this up, right? And because people made it up, we can make something better. And I believe that, that to me is hope. You know, when King says the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, like I'm mindful that people bend it, right? Like it bends because people bend it, not because like it just inevitably bends. And when I think about hope, hope is that bending work, right? Faith is the idea that it'll just bend. Hope is the notion that like you gotta do the work to make it bend. Okay. Um, there's another quote that you've got here. Um, we had known fear in our silence and we had grown tired of being silent. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, people would ask us all the time, why are we in the street? And it's like, because we tried everything else. We, we voted, we emailed, we called, we went to the meeting, we sat and testified. We did all that stuff and y'all still killed people. So the least we can do is stand in the middle of the street, right? And people will be like, well, you're inconveniencing us. And we're like, that's the point, right? Like the point is to inconvenience you. They're like, we want you to feel a modicum of the pain that we feel every day. Like the goal is for you to be pissed that you can't get to work on time or that you can't because Mike Brown's family will never get him back. So you will never know that pain. The goal is to make you feel something about it. And like, that was our, you know, people were like, why are you out here? And we're like, cause we tried silence and you killed us anyway. So the least we can do is be loud. It reminded me of that Audrey Lord quote, you know, your silence will not protect you, right? Yeah. Do you feel more people are becoming unmuted? Or do you think there is still an awful lot of silence in, in the States? No, I think they are becoming, I think that there's way more activism than there was before. Like Parkland, the Women's March, like all this stuff is, is really powerful. I, if there's anything I worry about, I think that people uh, don't have any more skills than they had in 2014. And that worries me, right? That like, I think that people have a lot more information than they had in 2014, that people can like talk about policies and stuff like that. Like they know sort of the what of what's happening. Skills though are things like running a meeting, like building relationships, like crafting, crafting things, like those sort of skills. I don't think that the movement space has sort of figured that out yet. And I think the hard thing is that like, 
there are more people that want to do good than have ever wanted to do good in the States. Like way more people want to join organizations and da da da. And even the best nonprofits don't have the infrastructure to take on 10,000 volunteers, right? So you see all these people wanting to do something meaningful and like the infrastructure we have for that, like just hasn't been able to absorb the sheer number of people who want to do good. So what you find is like a lot of asks for donations and a lot of asks for like you to join the mailing list, right? Because people don't know how to absorb the sheer number of people. I'm hopeful that in the next five years, we'll figure out how to absorb all the energy and like direct it somewhere and not just when it's a tragedy. So like most of you know that Trump is doing a lot around the border and creating all these crises around the border. So people are organizing around that in a really powerful way. But we should figure out how to organize when not only when like kids are being killed at the border. You know what I mean? Okay. You in the book kind of reject being labeled as one of the founders of um, Black Lives Matter. And, and why is that? Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that I think is real, and this is a tough thing to talk about because as much as people love the notion that we have like grown in the way that we think about organizing, I think the reality is, is that people are in love with hierarchy. Like people think about things in like a hierarchical sense. What was true in the street is that there was no one leader, there was no one, two, or three people who led the actions every day, there was no council that decided when things were going to happen. Like, there were people who met often, but there was no, like, coordinating committee. It literally was, like, good people in the middle of the street, people had roles, I was one of the town criers, some people planned things, some people led things in the street, some people were chant leaders, some people were drummers. Like, that is sort of how it happened, and there was this infrastructure, but people just can't imagine that poor black people could do something as complex as that without having like one, two, or three leaders telling them what to do. And I, and I push back against this notion in the book that like there were three people who decided everything or two, because that just didn't happen. It really was like black people in the middle of the street without a lot of structural power who figured out how to maneuver and do something that we hadn't seen before. What you do do, though, is, is uh, put a spotlight on the uh, gay African-American who came up with the hashtag, oh, yeah, Black yeah. Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about him? Because yes. that, that was news to me. So I talk about Marcus. Uh, so there's a guy, the first person ever to tweet Black Lives Matter was a black professor uh, at a college in, in California. And he did it for a very specific reason. And, and he has sort of been erased by the moment. And it reminds me of, if you've studied the civil rights movement, you know that like women were erased and gay people were erased. And this question of like, who are we willing to sacrifice to tell a larger narrative? And I think in this moment, there are a lot of people that people have been willing to sacrifice to tell a larger narrative. That when we look back at the protests, there's no way to talk about it without talking about Alexis, without talking about Mama Cat, without talking about people like Jonathan and Alicia, people who did incredible work. So I am confident in talking about the work that I did, but I know that I'm one of many people who did incredible work. And like part of our role is to actually say that there were many people who did incredible work. And I try to name them in that chapter. Mm. Um. Could you talk a little bit about the earn, deserve paradigm? Paradigm. Paradigm. Yeah, paradigm. Yeah, I was, you know, the funny thing about writing a book is that um, you write it and then people keep asking about it and you're like, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but it's funny because there's some stories in here I'm like, I did write that in the book. And I'm like, I did tell that story. And then there are things that I'm like, I didn't tell that story and I should have told that story. Like there's some people, um, in hindsight, I wish I told this, I'm gonna talk about the earned deserve prayer in a minute, but I wish I had told this story about one of the, there was a professor at SLU at one of the big universities, a law professor, and he was a protester. And what was really cool is that the police would try and meet with us often, they'd be like, can we come to a meeting? And we were like, no. 
And the protesters' official response was, we do not negotiate with terrorists. And it was amazing. <laughs> and the police were pissed every night, you know? Um, but one night they go and arrest, they go and arrest some people. And Justin, who's this professor, he's young, he like negotiates with the police to get them to release people. And you know, we had this line of like, we don't negotiate with terrorists. But Justin does it and they release them. And we were like, what? And Justin was like a hero. And then the police, because they're the police, like three days later, they like arrest Justin on some random stuff. And he comes out like Tupac Shakur. Like he comes out like ready to fight everybody. And we were like, this is great. Um, the earned deserve was this, this way of sort of talking about what does it mean that some people have to earn things and some people just deserve them? So when we think about race, it's like poor people, people of color, always have to prove that they are worthy. They always have to earn it. So they have to like earn food. They have to earn shelter. They have to earn a right to education. They have to earn. And then white people in America just deserve, like, of course they would get food. Of course they would get shelter. Of course they would get housing. So when we think about the history of race in our country, it's like you think about what does it mean that we literally gave white people land. We gave them land and houses for like one dollar all across the country because it was like they just deserve it. Of course, of course we would give white people land. Whereas we put black people in housing projects that were like underfunded, infested with rats. That's why black kids have more asthma than anybody. You know, like, so there's that part where I talk about this paradigm where like people of color and poor people always have to earn the very same things that we just assume that white people deserve from the beginning. And how does that change? Well, I think part of it is like naming it, right? Mm -hmm. And then sort of saying that like, it's not a radical idea to think that everybody should have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Like that's not like radical. So people are like, it's socialism. It's like, no, it's eating, right? Like this is like, a, that should be like a simple, a simple notion. Like it's not radical to say that like, everybody should have a bed to sleep on every night. Like part of our work is actually to, to tease back and take out the teeth of what people think is sort of wild and crazy, that like we actually have to normalize these things for people and normalize them across the board. And we should be really clear that like, when I, when I write about the earned thing, it's like, how does a four-year-old earn dinner? What do they do? Like, how does a seven-year-old become worthy of shelter? Like, you tell me what like a toddler does to prove to you that they deserve to eat, you know? And like, make the other side answer those questions. Your chapter on the problem of the police, uh, you know, and that um, chapter, it's clear that data is king because you guys assembled data that didn't exist, right, in terms of what the police had done. And some of the facts, uh, police kill 1,200 people a year in the States, 50,000 are hospitalized after being injured by police, black people are three times more likely to be killed. 97% of all police killings don't result in charges, and 99% of the cases that do go to court, the officer is not convicted. None of that data really existed, right? Pulled together until you guys did your thing? So a lot of people, a lot of activists help with the data. I will say that, like as organizers, I always tell people that we have enough data today to make the biggest decisions that'll change people's lives. We don't need any more data to prove that people should live in poverty. We don't need any more studies to prove that everybody should have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? So when people tell us like, oh, I need another study, it's like you actually don't need another study to make the big decision. We can do some studies to help like round out some of the understanding, but like you don't need another study on poverty or incarceration, like the studies have been done that will allow us to make the biggest decisions and we should fight people about that. Uh, one of the things that we've done in these studies, we did a big analysis of police union contracts and use of force policy, so that was sort of big and that didn't exist before. So we, a use of force policy is 
the policy by which police can use force in your communities. We think that it's pretty basic that you should know when the police can kill you. We think that's like sort of a bit, we don't think that's radical. And in cities across the country, it was a real battle to get them to release it. So like uh, El Paso, Texas, they sent it to us and it literally says the police can use a gun and then it's all black. And we're like, well, that's not helpful, right? Like, you're a liar. So we did a lot of work to uncover those things. And we found that there are some things that when we control for them, we can actually prove that it'll lead to less people being killed. So things that are simple, if you make a police department say that they can't shoot into moving vehicles, they kill less people. And you're like, that makes a lot of sense. And why does it make sense? And like, you don't need to be a rocket scientist, but when they shoot the person in the car, the car probably still keeps moving, right? So there are all these cases where like, there's a high-speed chase, they kill the driver, car crashes into five other cars, car crashes into a daycare, car crashes into a sidewalk. All these people die as collateral damage. It's a car, you're probably gonna find the person, keep chasing them, wait to the gas, you know, like, there's another alternative. We think that the police should have to report every time they point their gun at somebody. We say that to the police departments and they're like, that's crazy. It's like, how, how often are you pointing your gun at people? You know, like, this should be a rare occurrence. You shouldn't just be like, hello, parking ticket. Like, that is nuts, you know? So we can account for those. And then with the police union contracts, there are all these rules that almost guarantee the police won't be held accountable. So we track those. So there are a lot of cities in the country where you can't, you can't file an anonymous complaint against a police officer. And we think that like, you know, in America, especially in black communities, nobody is going to a police department and writing their name and address being like, I saw the police do that. Cause the police will track them down. Like nobody's doing that. So we track things like that. Or like in Chicago, there's a rule that says that when the police get interrogated, only two people can be in the room at any given time, and only one person can ask questions at any given time. And you're like, okay, that's weird. And the reason why that matters is the moment that two people talk at the same time, you've created a procedural violation that nullifies everything the police officer said. You're like, this is a scam, you know? So we track those things. About the data, though, that is really interesting is that the only numbers we have on police violence come from media reports. So if you get killed in the United States and a newspaper doesn't write about it, you don't exist in the data set because the government doesn't collect the information. And that is really wild. So there are places where there's holes in the data around race, for instance. So like there's some towns in Texas where it looked like white people were being killed disproportionately more than people of color. And what we found out when we did more, de did, did more digging is that Latinos were just being miscoded as white because we were going by newspaper reports, you know? So that is sort of wild. So the data collection is getting a little better now, but the federal government has not enforced any of the rules. And there are 18,000 police departments in the United States. So a lot of police departments and a lot happening. One of your interviews that I saw online, you spoke about the, um, you know, we're all probably gone online and looked at some of the um, body cam footage from the police and it's always grainy that it doesn't have to be grainy, you found out, correct? Doesn't have to be, yeah. So the reason why the camera, this is, I'm telling you, biggest scam in the game, guys. So the reason why the body camera footage is grainy, raise your hand if you've ever seen body camera footage, like in a, okay, a lot of you, that's good. Raise your hand if it was grainy. Okay, some people have seen clear footage. Uh, so grainy footage is grainy because the people that, the Taser, like if you've ever heard of a Taser, the company, they're not called Taser anymore, but the company formerly known as Taser is also the, one of the biggest uh, providers of body cameras. So they are like a police company. And they don't want the quality of the footage to be better than the human eye. So they want it to be grainy enough so you might be confused as to whether it was a gun or a toy gun. That is like their goal. 
and they actually do workshops with the police to show them like how to angle the cameras. Like they, they give the police these like camera workshops about how to angle it, how to make sure it's from the right perspective. And you're like, this is a big scam, you know? So we know those things today and we did not know them in 2014. Okay. I can see we're coming to our hour point, uh, DeRay. So we're almost gonna open it up for questions, but not quite. I think because we're in a major with a majority white audience, we should jump to Michael Harriet's quote. Um, Michael Harriet's an African-American writer or writer. White people who are quiet about racism might not plant the seed, but their silence is sunlight. And you write in, in the chapter, The Choreography of Whiteness, that it is the work of white people to undo whiteness. So how, how can you explain that to the majority white audience? <laughs> Oh, there, there are a lot of things. I would say one is this idea of like, where are you willing to tell the truth? So there are a lot of people that are willing to tell the truth everywhere but the dinner table, everywhere but their office, everywhere but their church, right? Like people will scream at strangers before they will tell the people they love. And like part of our work, part of everybody's work, especially people with privilege, is to like fight the fight where you are. That there are a lot of people who come outside and are like, the system is bad, but at the dinner table when people are being racist, people are just quiet. And there's always this question of like, where are you willing to take the truth? Like, are you willing to be uncomfortable? And also knowing that like taking the truth doesn't always mean like a full-fledged fight, but it does mean like not letting people off the hook when they say things. And there are a lot of ways not to let people off the hook. So some of the ways that I've seen is like asking the question, like, did you really mean to say that? You know, like there are all these ways that you can do it that aren't like, I hate you, I hope you die. And people <laughs> think that like, people think that I hate you, I hope you die is like the only way to do it. And I, there are a lot of ways to be like, I don't think that was called for. Like I was in a meeting once and um, when I was in Minneapolis, I was, you know, I'm young, I was like 27, I was one of the highest ranking black people in the school system, and I was in charge of all staffing. So I come into this room, and the woman before me had only staffed supermarkets. I don't know why they hired her to staff schools, but she made all these plans, it didn't make sense. So when I got there, we had to redo some of the plans just because she didn't, they were wrong. So I walk into this meeting, and there's a woman who comes in, and she leads this one department that didn't report to us. But I had to recruit teachers for her. So she comes in and I'm like, hey, great to meet you. This is our first meeting. It's like five of us in the room, but she's like the lead. My team is meeting with her. And I'm like, you know, we'll get you a revised plan in like a couple of days. So sorry that the plan that our team put together before I got here didn't make sense, but like it's our responsibility, we'll do it. And she pauses and she looks at me real chill and she goes, uh, just because you're new doesn't mean that we're redoing everything. And I'm like, did she really just say that in this meeting? Like, did this really just happen, right? So she is like being crazy in this meeting. I don't even know this woman. And the Baltimore me would have started yelling across the table, but I'm not in Baltimore anymore, so I had to be chill. So I look at her and I'm like, real, and it's, a, it's like, we're not alone in the room, right? And I look at her and I'm like, real chill back. And I'm like, you will never talk to me like that again. And we just sit there. We just looking at each other and the whole, the room is like, you could feel it. You know, people are like stressed and I'm like, we can do that. I just got here. I don't have no more meetings today. We can sit here all day long, but we are not doing that. And then she's like, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, I'm sorry too. And we just sitting there, right? Like, I'm not letting you, I will not let you off the hook that that was crazy to talk to me like that. 
and I get that I'm 27 and I get that you're 40, but the plan don't make sense and we're not doing it like this. You know, like I think that sometimes we can like push people. The second thing is like to use your privilege to fight for things that don't necessarily impact you in the moment. That if the only thing you fight for are things that impact you in the moment, like that actually isn't what it means to be an accomplice. That isn't what it means to stand with people. And there are a lot of people who like don't get it until the trauma is at their doorstep. Like you actually gotta, stand close to people and ask them like how they need you to fight for them. I think that has to be a part of it. The third is how do we make sure that we use our platforms to tell the truth about how we got to where we are? So when we talk about truth and reconciliation, we're always mindful that the truth has to come before the reconciliation. There are a lot of people who want to do all the reconciliation work without any of the truth work, right? So I was talking to somebody today here in Christchurch and like talking about the language of like colonialism was real, comes with a set of values and beliefs. Those values and beliefs are still present. And part of our work is to uproot the values and beliefs, right? And you can't uproot them if you can't name them. And like walking people through that in like a real way that like the values and beliefs say that we believe that people from different heritages are like less worthy or like aren't civilized, right? Like those sort of things are like paternalistic, but they have a lot of sway in the way systems are built. And the fourth thing I say is like, I'm obsessed with systems that most of the things that are racist or problematic are like deeply coded in like a structure. Like they exist not just in people's minds, but we reinforce them in the way that we make decisions at scale and that we have to fight at that level too. So if the only thing you're willing to do uh, is have the conversation and not talk about how we change like the structure of society, we'll never win. I'm just gonna ask one more question and then throw it to the audience. Um, you're dark on the term, the hashtag woke term, ally or allyship. You prefer accomplice. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, it's very simple. An ally loves you from a distance. So an ally is like, hope you get free. Hope you get, like, good job. Hope you get free. An accomplice is like next to you and is like, let us get free together, right? This idea of like, let me stand next to you in the work. An ally is like, you know what? Go protest. I got you. I see you. Hope they don't kill you. Like, I love you. Like, allies sort of love you from a distance. So they want brownie points for like believing in the good thing, but aren't willing to put anything on the line. We want people who are willing to put something on the line. And the thing is that white people often have a whole lot less to lose if it goes bad anyway. So when I think about being in the street in St. Louis, there would be white, uh, white clergy who would come and put themselves at the front of the protest line when it got really crazy. The police, I'll never forget one day, this old white woman, she puts herself in front of the line. The police had just body slammed all these black people. She is right where the black people were. They literally walk over to her, they grab her arm. They're like, ma'am, come with me. I'm like, is that really how you arrested her? Ma'am, come with me? You know, it was like this incredible, you're like, and it was, the cost for her was just so much lower than everybody else, but her resistance actually made a huge impact. When we did that shut it down, that was, um, they think it's a game. It was important there were all white women out there jump roping because we knew that the police weren't gonna arrest all white women jump roping. Like they didn't know anything about these women, but they, like that shot on the news was a bad shot, you know? And like, we knew it. And those sort of things are like things that white people can uniquely do. And the reality is, is that, around you, people are gonna say things about race that they would never say about around me or around you. So you actually have to be the people in those rooms sort of pushing and fighting because I'll never hear it. By the time somebody says around me, it's sort of like long and gone or they're whispering or hoping I don't hear it or they're just ready to fight, you know? Whereas like people mumble things around you because they really believe it and like you actually have to be willing to fight in those moments or press. Okay, thank you, Dore. An hour.
So we have time, we have about uh, 10 or so minutes for questions. There are a couple of roving uh, microphones around. If anybody would like, there's a question. Before our first question, I'm gonna put you on my, I'm gonna put you on my um, Instagram for a second. So we're gonna start over here. We're gonna start right here, really, but like, just be lively, okay? <laughs> Don't screw it up, you guys, okay. Here we go, one, two, three. Um, we're gonna try it again. You guys are great. A little dicey. Okay. We're gonna work on this. Okay. Okay. Are you going again? <laughs> yeah, they, they just had to, you know. Over here. They okay. really were ready, you know? Dicey. Okay. One, two, three. Hey! Thank you. Much better. Thank you. Okay. Okay, first question. Yeah, and can I just uh, be clear? Questions and not statements, please. <laughs> questions and not statements. Hi, um, I wonder if Black Lives Matter feels supported enough by the Democratic Party in the US, um, especially thinking about the reaction to the four congresswomen of color um, that I feel are not supported enough within their own party. Yeah, I think that the, the movement is a broad space, right? So there's not one sort of thing that is Black Lives Matter. The movement's a big space. I think the reality is that we have no home in the Republican Party. So that is a non-starter. So I think that people realize that the Democratic Party is imperfect, uh, definitely better than the alternative that we got right now, and that, like, there's still a lot of people afraid to talk about race and justice. They are. Like, even the good guys are afraid to talk about some of the issues that are really important. What's really powerful about this presidential cycle is that things like reparations, which even in 2016 were like, they were so far left and so wild, whereas now everybody has to have a position on it, right? Things like Medicare for All or single payer were like sort of fringe topics in 2016. They are like, if you don't have an answer, it doesn't make sense today, right? The criminal justice things that were sort of like only because the protesters asked about them, they're like main issues today are like, like that sort of stuff is real. If there's any gripe I have about the protests is that in 20, I, you know, we met with Hillary, we met with Bernie, we endorsed, or it was like pub I publicly supported Hillary in the Washington Post and da da da. Is that there were a lot of people, activists in 2016, who were like, "President doesn't matter. You're wasting your vote. You should only vote locally. You're like you should withhold your vote to show." But you're like people, a lot of people participate in that logic. The president does matter. President's wild today. Mm. And it's important that those people like help us understand their logic so we don't repeat those sort of things, you know? But the party is the party. Is the party. I was with AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, incredible congresswoman. What's cool about AOC is that she actually lives up to the hype. She is better than the hype, actually, and that is cool. And I remember I interviewed her on the pod, and I said to her, this is before she got sworn in, but she won, and I said, you know, some people are frustrated that you ran as a Democrat because you feel like an independent to people. And that like you should have won, like people feel like you should have won as a, an independent. And she beat the third highest ranking Democrat in the party. So I said to her, what's your relationship with the, with the party? Like what's your relationship with the leadership of the party and the party? And she pauses and she looks at me and like, it was so great. It was like, I wish we had recorded video of it. And she goes to Ray, my relationship with the party is fine because the party is every single mother, every teacher, every nurse, every bartender whose door I knocked on, and my party, my relationship with them is perfect. And I was like, that's the answer, right? So when we think about our relationship with the party, we know that the party is not the people who have the titles, the party is the people. Uh, 
got a, oh, you want to take that one, Rachel? I'll come to you, sir. Kia ora today. Um, just quickly, I just want to say thank you for all the insights so far. Um, New Zealand's got a bit of a weird um, relationship with protests. We both glorify the protests we've had in the past, whilst a lot of people don't like people bothering them in their own lives. But right now we've got a few going on. We've got the protests at Ihu Matau. I'm um, sorry if I've mispronounced that. And we've got um, our very own school strike for climate protests. My question is, what advice would you have for young people trying to force systemic change in New Zealand as they sort of dip their toes into it now? What advice would you have as someone who's been doing it for a few years? Yeah, I'd say that any idea that's ever changed the world started in a, in a kitchen or on a porch in a basement or a classroom. Like the people think that it starts grand, but it actually like the ideas start in like the smallest of places. And that's actually a beautiful thing to remind people that like they have the power to do stuff. The second is that uh, if you listen to all the people around you, you'd never do anything, you know? So like people should like follow their heart and their work in that. You know, what's interesting is uh, nobody likes the protest, but everybody loves benefiting from the protest, right? So people are like, I can't believe those people out there. It's like the only reason you got the right to vote is because people are out there, right? The only reason that like women aren't treated as like non-beings is because people, pro like, do you know what I mean? Like that is the only reason that queer people can get married and it's like because people fought and fought and fought and people never loved they always talk about the fighting part as like a bad thing until they benefit from it and then they're like celebrating them in the history books, right? So like I am mindful of that every single day that like when we were in the street, people told us, I mean, people said the craziest things about us. And today, literally people are like, people are DMing me being like, hey, are you coming to the protest at noon and then brunch at one? And you're like, what are we, this is not like a game. Do you know what I mean? Like this is really weird. So I'd say that. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is that like none of us have all the answers. If we did, then we wouldn't have to fight this hard, right? That I've learned so much from like 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, like people who don't have the life experience that you would expect, but like we have to put our we have to put ourselves in the positions to learn from people because if we had all the answers, like we shouldn't we wouldn't be fighting like this. And I'm mindful of those things. Got this uh, gentleman here. And probably one more question after this. Uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, your, your, your approach is, is very hopeful and optimistic and give people like us a, a lot of inspiration. But what we've also noticed is a rise of white supremacy, uh, white nationalists, not only in the US, but we've also seen it in New Zealand where we've seen mass murders. Now, how would you go about looking at these people and, and, and while you are trying to uh, achieve something great and fantastic, on the other extreme, we have people that are trying to put forth a racist ideology that one race is superior than the other. How do we go about approaching these people so that we can have a better world? Yeah, I think that, and I don't even know if there's a rise as much as like the people are just more confident being public, right? I think that's actually what Trump did is that, like what we realized in the States is that, or what people realized at the national level is that the Trump voters had existed, Trump didn't make the people voters, right? The Trump voters existed long before Trump existed, and that Trump activated them, right? And that part of our memory is that, like, uh, that even when Trump goes away, like the voters will be like the the values and beliefs of the voters will remain. So when we think about the work of white people, it really is like who is pushing those people? Because it's not my job to go into a Trump voter's house and be like, "Hi, I'm a whole person. Please value me." Not my job, right? <laughs> it is somebody's job to do that, and that is the job of white people. So I believe that. The second is that, like, 
you know, people of color are not walking into buildings shooting people. Like, it is white supremacist, right? Like, that, that is real and honest, and, like, government should be putting way more resources on those people than they are on people of color. You and I both know that if any person of color had shot up anything, it would be wall-to-wall covered, like their whole family. We would know what they ate for breakfast as a five-year-old with their cousin lit. You know, like, it would be this whole expose. When white people do it, it literally is like, Johnny ran to school barefoot as a seven-year-old. And you're like, what? This is a, like, that is nuts. So part of our work, too, is like to call out the media coverage of it. When I think about the, like, how do we fix it, I really do think most of the people are going to die soon, so that's a good thing. I think that, like, there's a generation that just, like, is holding it down, and I think that... They're gonna go. Uh, so that is, uh, that is good. Uh, but I do think that this is like seriously the work of white people. Like that, the, the end of the ideology about white supremacy is the work of white people. The end of the structural components of white supremacy are like everybody's job. So when we are fighting around police stuff, it is like a reminder that like, this institution disparately impacts people of color and we wanna do our part to uproot white supremacy from the institution. The values and beliefs we gotta work on too, but like the values and beliefs, we can't undo that if we don't change the behaviors, you know? That that has to be a part of it. Uh, but yeah, and you know, in, in the States we have so many shootings that it is, like we don't even know them all. There was a shooting at a college four days ago, you probably didn't even hear about it. Clark Atlanta, there was a shooting at Atlanta. Uh, it was a, there was like a cookout right before school started and all of a sudden somebody starts shooting, four kids get shot, nobody dies, but like, there's so many. So at home, we are fighting with the white supremacists who control the gun lobby, you know? In America, it is illegal for the government to do a study about gun violence. Like, the government literally can't even study the topic uh, because it's against the law, because the gun lobby got that written into national legislation, which is really wild. So we are struggling with the host of those things. Uh, but yeah, the ideology is the work of white people. The structural part is the work of everybody. Do we have time for one more, Rachel? Yeah, uh, down here. Kia ora, DeRay. Um, I just wanted to reference something that you said yesterday about bringing the truth into the room wherever you go. And I just wonder if in doing that you think uh, grace is relevant, and if so, how do you remain graceful with people during that time? Yeah, so grace is... Uh, well, you get better than you deserve, right? And I'm mindful that I'm not Jesus, so I don't have unlimited grace, right? <laughs> so there's like a, there's a limit to my grace. Uh, and there should be, that's why Jesus is here. No limit to his grace, right? So go to him when you need unlimited grace, come to me when the grace might run out. I think that, uh, what does it mean to bring the truth in the room? Is that like, again, it's like the truth doesn't always have to be some like, I hate you, I wanna kill you, right? So yesterday I told this story, I was at this party, I didn't say this part, the, part, the thing, but Beyonce's mom has a party every year called the wearable art gala. So you wear like a piece of art. So I'm wearing, I'm at this party, so everybody's at this party, and I'm wearing, um, I'm wearing like a, a jacket that has facts on it, like a clear plastic coat that has these facts. One of the facts is that uh, we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined, that is true. And then another of the facts is that white high school dropouts have more wealth than all black college graduates, which is also true. So this white record exec, he walks up to me, you heard this story yesterday, this white record exec walks up to me and he goes, is this true? And I'm like, yeah, why would I wear fake facts, right? Like, that's weird. <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't think that's true. And I'm like, mm, I don't know if you get to not think the fact is true, like the fact is true. And he goes, DeRay, well, the only reason there are more white people 
uh, or the only reason why white people have more wealth is that there are more white people. And I was like, okay. Uh, but we're at a party, so I can't be like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. So I look at him and I go, well, the only reason there are more white people is that you killed half the people and enslaved the other half. <laughs> and he is like, and then he's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, no, no, you don't get to not know that like that happened, right? But that was a small way of like bringing the truth, right? I didn't, we didn't have to fight about it, but it was like, I just cannot let you walk out of my presence with that statement hanging. We just can't do it, right? And I'm willing to, both of us are going to be uncomfortable here, but like, I'm going to smile and be like, because you killed half the people and enslaved the other. But like, I just cannot let you out of my presence with that being like, and there are a lot of moments where like, I'm not ready to fight. I'm like tired. I'm like tired of being the gay guy or the black guy. You're like, I'm just tired of doing it. But people will say stuff and I'm like, I don't know if that's it. Like, that's my gentle way. When I'm like, I don't know if that was it. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, I don't know, you know? And they're like, and then that is my, like, you need to uncover your own stuff. And then sometimes it is a little more direct, like, you know that was wrong. And they're like, what? And I'm like, come on. You know, like, I think we can actually do it in a whole lot of ways, but just, like, not letting people out of our... So Obama, I didn't say this yesterday, so we had this meeting with Obama, long meeting, good meeting, but it was four hours, and after four hours, you're like, get me out of here. So we're in this meeting, and right before that meeting, Obama had gotten on the news, and there were protests in Baltimore, and people burned down some buildings. So Obama gets on TV, and he calls them thugs. He's like, the people who burn down whatever are thugs. That's like what he says. So I'm there, and he, Obama is literally, I talk about some other stuff, and he's ready to jump across the table and kick me, and it's like, fine, Obama, but you know, <laughs> I could say all the other stuff. I'm going to see all these other people anytime I want to. I'm not going to see you again, so I'm just going to tell you everything right here, right? So he's like, DeRay, you had a lot of comments from me. And I'm like, I sure did, Mr. President. So he's ready to kill me. But after the meeting, it's just he and I, it, like behind, I walk up to him. And I'm like, President Obama, he's like, yes, DeRay. And I'm like, uh, you can't call people thugs. I said it just like that. I was so tired. I just got out of jail, too. So I was like, I could tell anybody anything. You know, I'm like, I'm hot. I'm sweaty. The police stole my book bag. They still got my book bag. Um, so I'm like, you can't call people thugs. And he looks at me and he goes, because I had just got on the news, the White House was really pissed at me because on the news I said the police were engaged in genocide. So I get all these calls from the White House being like, don't say that, Dre. I'm like, feels like genocide, looks like genocide. And they're like, do not say this. So anyway, so Obama goes, you said things on TV you shouldn't say. And I'm like, but I'm not the president. <laughs> and, and he's like, you're right. I'm like, I know I'm right. But it was like... <laughs> I could have yelled at him across the room being like, I can't believe you call black people thugs and create it. And you're like, what he did was by calling black people, because he was black, because he's black, him calling black people thugs created space for white people to call everybody thugs, right? So I could have said that in the meeting and been like, you let everybody call me. But it was like, I'm going to go up to you and I just cannot walk out of this room without telling you that that wasn't okay, right? And there was another, I didn't tell this story yesterday, but in that same meeting, there were three protesters, me, Brittany, and this woman named Misha. And they had just killed Philando Castile, if you remember Philando. Philando got pulled over, uh, he had a gun, had a gun license, police officers shoot him anyway, they kill him with his daughter and his girlfriend in the car. So Philando just gets killed, and then Alton Sterling, Alton got killed in this town where I was. So they, they got killed like days apart, so it was like a huge thing, and then we're in this, you know, Obama. So the police chief from the place where Philando got killed, he is there, and then Misha is from the town right next to it. 
So I don't know what the police chief, the police chief was saying something slick about the protesters and we're in like a big rectangle. So I'm sitting right here, Obama's right there, Misha's over here, and then the police chief guy's on my side. He's like not next to me, but he's on my side. He says something slick. Next thing you know, Misha is yelling at him across the room. He's yelling back and I'm like, oh God. So they are yelling and it's like 30 of us in the room with the president. And I got Misha in the room. So I'm sort of looking like, mm, I probably should tell her to stop yelling. And then I look up, I'm like, the president of the United States, this is meeting. If we can yell, I guess everybody yelling. So I'm just sitting there like, oops, this is awkward. So they are literally like yelling at each other across the room and everybody is just silent. And Obama looks at her and he goes, this is how he de-escalates her, it was very good. He looks and he goes, I wanna hear you. I wanna make sure I hear you. I wanna hear you. And she calms down. And then he mispronounces her name, and she's like, that's not my name. And it's, <laughs> it's like this great thing. But it was like, what was so great about it is like, she just would not let him tell a lie in that room. You know, like not Obama, but the police. She was just like, I don't care if God himself is sitting at the head of this table, but what you won't do is lie on somebody you killed. You just won't do it. You know what I mean? And she was okay with never being invited back, with looking crazy, with being seen as a child. Like she was okay with all of those things because her commitment to the truth was more important than her commitment to her reputation, right? And there's so many people who like just don't bring the truth with them into the room. And she did it in that way. That was sort of like a battle. I did it in a like, you know, you shouldn't say that way, you know, but it was like, we just can't let people off the hook. And I will say it's been one of the most freeing parts of my life post-protest is just like not letting people. And the last thing I'll say, because we're at time, is uh, Nip, do you know Nipsey Hussle? So Nipsey Hussle is a rapper, got killed. Nipsey posted a photo on Instagram with a homophobic caption like months before he got killed. And I tweeted, I tweeted about it. So Nipsey responds to my tweets and we're going back and forth because the caption was homophobic. Nipsey goes on an interview later, he apologizes. He gets killed later. So um, I'm, at a, I'm at like a, a sneaker festival. I'm at like this, I'm at Complex Con, which is sort of like a hype beast festival thing. This guy comes up to me, he goes, Deray, so good to meet you. Da -da. I'm like, great to meet you. He's like, can I ask you something? I'm like, yeah. He's like, can we talk about Nipsey Hussle? I'm like, what is up? He's like, why did you say he was homophobic? And I'm like, and in my mind, I'm like, not the place to do this, not the place. And I'm like, well, because he, he was homophobic. And he's like, I can't believe you said that. I'm like, well, and in my mind, I'm like, let me just let this guy go. But I'm like, I cannot, like, I will not let you get away with this, right? And I'm like, we can, you can love him and say he said something that was problematic. Those two things don't have to be in conflict, right? And that he did apologize, but what I'm not gonna let you do is act like those words were not a problem, they were a problem. He's like, but Dre, I think you're being too sensitive. I am sensitive. You know, it's like, I'm not letting you walk away with me endorsing what you just said. Even though I'm tired, this is not the right place, I got somewhere to go, but you try, he's trying to wear me down because we're at the sneaker conference and I'm like, you got the wrong one today. We are gonna do this all day long, right? And like my commitment to just not letting people off the hook is like much greater than it's ever been. Boom. Get the book. The book, the book oh, is. Sorry, just before you wrap up, just before Rebecca wraps up. Sorry. I don't think your mic's on. Oh, is this, can you turn this mic back on, please? Thank you. Sorry. Um, Come on, Joe. I just Give it up for Joe, the sound guy. <laughs> 
Um, just in, in front of everybody, I just on behalf of Word Christchurch, I just want to say thank you so much for your generosity tonight. Um, so Duray's talked to all of you tonight, but also he talked to 2,000 people at TEDx yesterday. And I also want to have a really big thank you to Kyla at TEDx and TEDx for partnering with us to bring Duray to Christchurch. So thank you so much. Well, I'm going to be in the foyer. I'm going to be outside. Yes? Okay, I'm going to yeah. be outside. I'll see you outside. The book, yeah, On the Other Side of Freedom, for sale outside. DeRay will be signing. DeRay, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. We thought we would finish at 8.30. Didn't quite work out like that. I think we could have gone another hour very easily. And in closing, I just want to um, use a quote from your, uh, your book, which is an invitation, really, to us all. Hope is not magic. Hope is work. Let's get to the work. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We did it. We did it. Boom, 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 boom. Welcome back.